Thanks, Steve. Thanks for telling us. So I want to transition now from that announcement, uh, which is kind of sad, bittersweet, to a more happy announcement, which has to do with our Take Back Black Friday offering. Last week, we introduced this year's focus for Take Back Black Friday, which is where we invite you to maybe spend a little less on Black Friday sales and instead invest that into some kind of kingdom investment. We always bring you some project that God is involved in around the world and invite you to be a part of that and give generously to be a part of that above and beyond whatever giving you'd normally do to church. The idea here is that this is sacrificially giving maybe some of what we would have spent on ourselves or on Christmas presents or something like that. You know, and I know my kids don't mind at all when I say, hey, we got you less Christmas presents this year. So maybe you don't tell them, right? Uh, but it's, the idea is it's sacrificial giving to, to really do some good around the world. And you know, the commercials are constantly driving us toward wanting to spend more money. And if you're anything like me, you see something that's a really good deal, but you don't really need it. And you think, well, I'm actually saving money by buying this. And you know you're not. You know you're still spending money. It's just less money than the MSRP. But what we want to encourage you to do is spend a little less and actually give to something that matters. And last week, we introduced you to the first of two projects that our Take Back Black Friday offering will go to. One of those is Lifeway Missions International. They're in Kenya. They're one of our long-term missions partners, and we're just kind of building this partnership there. We are going to resource church planters to go throughout Kenya and throughout Africa with audio Bibles for those that can't read, with print Bibles, and with motorcycles, which are needed for the rough terrain. That's one half of the project. The other half of the project is local here in North St. Louis. There is a church called Jubilee Community Church. They're an evangelical free church. And we've partnered with them for a long time. We have lots of ministry we've done together. We have people here that regularly serve there and are heavily involved with that church. And we want to continue that through the creation of a nice pavilion outside their facility. So they have a community garden where people can come and learn how to grow food and they can get all kinds of good fresh food there. And there's a, there's a lot of programs that they have to help people with jobs and other needs that they have doing a lot of really good work. And this pavilion will allow them to have sort of an outdoor meeting space to do more gatherings, more trainings, just allow them to do a lot more ministry effectively. And we want to help resource them to be able to build that pavilion. And so last month, Frank Agavino and John Richardson visited Jubilee and they took some video while they were there. We want to show that to you now. Hello, my first uh, free church. Uh, this is uh, Pastor Gill. Uh, it is good to to see that our partnership is continuing to go on, and we are we are excited about this new pavilion that's going to go in this garden here. That's going to be a blessing to our community, as you will hear from other people. Uh, Jubilee is freedom from slavery, slavery of bondage, slavery of, of the position and the structure and the system that. That has corrupted the world these days. Jubilee means opportunity. Um, Jubilee means a, um, a safe environment, a clean environment, a healthy environment. What we are starting and, and adding to Jubilee is a um, food insecurity program. We're partnering with Jubilee. We're going to make sure that these uh, great young men of God are going to be fed um, good, healthy, whole food. 
Um, we are going to transform this into a diner. We work very closely with our men. We kind of coordinate things with getting them here, doing things around the ministry, within the community. They work out in our garden. They help work in our kitchen. They help here uh, on Sunday morning services. Like I said, just trying to help them get back into society. With the new pavilion being out here, it would definitely help these guys to, um, it would definitely help have for a shelter for us, the homeless guys go. You know, sometimes it get good and rainy. They could be out here, you know, step under the pavilion a while, give them a piece of shelter for a minute. We just, we just want to thank God for you and uh, thank God for the continued love and uh, a commitment that we have toward one another, even though we don't get a chance to see each other sometimes. We love you and we thank you. So that's our Take Back Black Friday offering. Two projects, one in Kenya to help with church planning and one right here in St. Louis. And we hope that you'll be a part of that. November 27th is when the giving will be open and that'll continue through the rest of the year. We encourage you to be a part of giving to that. Every year you give so generously, not only to this church, but also to these extra projects that we put before you. And God has done some amazing things through it. And we trust that that will just continue again this year. So thank you for all that you do there. I wanna turn our attention now to the word of God. And we're gonna take a break from the Acts series for a minute because we've got a special day coming up this week. Anybody know what it is? Oh, thank you so much. You know, I asked that question in the first service and it was crickets. You guys, gold star, Thanksgiving, Turkey Day, whatever you want to call it. We have a lot to be thankful for. And I want to talk a little bit about thanks today. We're going to do it in the context of Luke chapter 17. So we'll take a break from Acts just for a little bit. We're going to go to Luke 17. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. And while you're going there, I want to do something a little bit risky. I want to ask you to think back to what it was like going through the first year or so of the pandemic. I know we are all tired of hearing about the pandemic. We don't want to hear about COVID or all sorts of things to have to do with the pandemic. And right now there's a fight going on about whether or not to keep the state of emergency in the U.S., which gives the federal government more power because of the pandemic. But I want you to go back there for a little bit and just remember what it was like in those first few months and really the first year, year and a half of going through the pandemic. It was pretty scary. There was a lot of anxiety. Just our society had so much anxiety, so much fear over how bad this thing could be, over the unknown um, that really scared us and, and the known that scared us as well. Do you remember maybe going and getting groceries and then just leaving them in your car for hours, hoping that would just get rid of any virus before you brought them in your house? Did anybody else do that? Or when you came home, running right to the shower to shower right away in case you got any virus off you to, on you to get it off right away as quickly as possible. Anybody else remember that? Like all the things we did because we were so freaked out. One, one day I walked into church and I saw one of our tech guys walking in with a full hazmat suit on, just trudging in to, to man a camera. I think he meant it as a joke, but you know what? It wasn't that much of a joke. It turned out to be kind of a, a valid point. There was so much fear and so much anxiety over this, and it, it really um, it caused us to have so much isolation and so much separation from each other. Do you remember all? I mean, suddenly we got so good at doing video meetings online, didn't we? Like connecting with people. We started doing board games online. We started doing all kinds of things online as much as possible. And there was that extreme isolation and separation that we experienced, which for, caused a lot of extra problems, a lot of extra mental health problems. The only people that really loved that were the extreme introverts. We're like, finally, I don't have to talk to anybody. I can just stay in my, this is amazing. But other than that, it caused a lot of issues for us, a lot of problems. Maybe you remember 
early on in the pandemic, when, when we started to get out a little bit again, but we were still all really cautious and careful. Do you remember ever being in public around a group of people and feeling the urge to cough? And be like, nah, I can't do that. And you just stuff it. And like, no, I'm not going to cough. Why? Because what happens when you cough? Everybody, time stands still and everybody just looks at you. Like you clearly have the virus because you just coughed. Now there were 99.9% .9 chance that it wasn't COVID. Could have been allergies or one of the many other viruses or anything else. But you didn't want to have anybody looking at you like, oh, you're the, the problem. And even allergy symptoms, you know, whatever it was. Like I remember at one point getting tested and the tester told me, oh yeah, 90 plus percent of the people that are getting tested have something other than COVID. They have some other virus. You realize those didn't go away. Those are all out there. But no matter what it was, it was like, whoa, pariah, we don't want anything to do with you if you have any kind of symptoms. Do you remember what that was like? It was very unnerving. And it was very unfortunate if you were someone that had some kind of a symptom or a cough or something like that. It was just like, oh no, can I even go out in society? Like I need to wear a sign or something that says unclean, you know, stay away from me. And the reason why I bring that up is because I actually think that going through what we just collectively did helps us better understand something in the text we're going to look at today. Imagine for a minute that COVID was a disease that was virtually 100% fatal. And it was a disease that didn't kill you right away, but it took a long time to get there. And along the way, it caused all sorts of disfigurement and terrible smells and your body just falling apart along the way and it being contagious, not through anything airborne, but actually through touch. And you know what would happen? A lot fewer people would get it, but those that got it would have a miserable life. 10, 20, 30 years of living completely isolated from other people. Of course, these days, if there was something like that that existed, we would put them in a medical facility and everyone that went around them would have hazmat suits on and there'd be, you know, air purifiers and would do everything possible to keep that from spreading to anyone else. And it would still be miserable, but not as bad as what it was in Bible times. And what I'm talking about is a, a, a real condition that exists today, but we have medical treatment for it now. They didn't back then. It's called leprosy. And leprosy was this catch-all term that got used for a variety of skin conditions. Not everyone that got leprosy got real leprosy. There were a lot of different things that they could get that because they didn't have the testing capability, they would look at your skin and look at the sores and look at what was happening to you and say, okay, you, it looks like you have leprosy. And so it was sort of this catch-all term that got used for a lot of things, but Real leprosy is where you start to not being able to feel pain. And so any time you have an injury, a cut, some kind of illness or something, an infection, it basically goes untreated. You don't even know about it. You don't need to know to do anything about it. And so eventually your body just wastes away. You get some kind of infection in your nose and eventually it's, it's, it's really terrible and your, your body starts to kind of waste away and you might lose your nose or ears or limbs. It just, it creates all these problems beyond just the leprosy itself. It causes all these other issues that happen. And so to be a leper in Bible times was to be an outcast from society. Because if you had real leprosy or one of the conditions that just wouldn't go away, there was no cure, there was no hope, there was no future for you. And this was the situation that 10 men find themselves in in the passage we are going to look at today. And maybe after what we just went through, just a little bit we can kind of understand in a way that we wouldn't have three years ago the sort of outcast exclusion and the fear that people would experience around people with leprosy. It was a slow and agonizing death sentence. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you, if you've got your Bibles in Luke 17, we're going to read this together. Luke 17, starting in verse 11. Here's what Luke tells us. 
As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered the village there, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal 10 men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Let's just pause and talk to the author for a minute. God, we know that this is your word that's been passed down and recorded for us so that we can actually learn from it and do something with it. And so, God, I pray that today you would help us to push aside all of the distractions that would keep us from focusing on you. Calm our hearts, still our souls so that we can focus in on what you want to teach us today, God. We know that there are things in here that will teach us about you, and there are things in here that will teach us how we should live. We pray that we'd be open to both. Lord, help us to learn from your word today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most people today, when they, or most people back then, when they saw someone with leprosy, they would, they would keep their distance. They would stay as far away as they possibly could. And you'll notice that these men came and they, they stood at a distance, which, which was good and appropriate and respectful. And, and Jesus didn't exactly run over and give them a hug, uh, but they stood at a distance and they said to Jesus, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And I want to focus on one of these particular guys today, one of them who is singled out by Luke as being kind of more special than the rest for some various reasons. And I want to learn from five things that either he did or that happened to him in the course of this text. There are five things that we need to observe here. The first one is that his need brought him to Jesus. His need brought him to Jesus. So he and the others cry out, Jesus, master or rabbi, have mercy on us. They knew who he was going into this. They probably heard that he was coming through. They probably made sure that they went to the outside of this village that they could not go into to be at the road where he would pass through to make sure that when he was coming through, because they had heard that he was performing miracles, they wanted to be there. They cried out to him, not for food or for money, but for mercy. It was a polite way of saying, hey, we've heard you can do miracles. Can you do anything for us? Can you help us? They believed. They believed that he could do something that would help them if he was only willing. And so Jesus, this is really interesting, gives them a test. He gives them a test. Now, he doesn't always do this. But sometimes when Jesus performs a miracle, there's some action that he requires of the people who will benefit from that healing before it actually happens. And in this case, what does he say? Get out of here. Leave. Go to the priests, presumably in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was headed eventually anyway. Go to the priests and present yourselves to them. Now, what did this mean? Why, why did they need to do this? Well, they knew exactly what this meant. Because when you had leprosy, remember, it was sort of a catch-all term that could describe a lot of different illnesses on the skin. And it wasn't really known whether this would be the bad kind of leprosy or not. And so there'd be some times where someone would have what they maybe thought was leprosy, other people thought was leprosy, and they would have to go live outside the village for maybe a few weeks, set up a tent, you know, have some food there, and see if it went away. And if it went away, then it wasn't the really bad kind of leprosy, and, and they could go and 
present themselves to a priest who would inspect them and say, yep, seal of approval. You have recovered. You're okay. You can get back to the rest of society. That was the way things were set up. That's the way the law was set up so that there was this, this allowance for maybe you don't have a leprosy that's going to stick with you for the whole time. And so when Jesus said, go present yourselves to the priests, they knew what that meant. That meant when you present yourself to the priest, they're going to clear you. Now, at this point, these men would not qualify. At this point, they were not healed yet. They probably had all sorts of issues that were visible that made it obvious that they had leprosy. I mean, we don't know how long all of them had it, but presumably many of them probably had it for a very long time, at least some of them. And so there, there are bound to be disfigurements and things missing from their body and, and issues that they have and sores all over, and they probably smell really bad. But Jesus is telling them, if you go, then you will be healed. It's really interesting that Jesus requires this action of them in the process. And you know, I think that there's something to that. I think that a lot of times God still operates that way today where there are, there are times where we will pray for something and pray for and pray and pray and pray and God why aren't you doing something and the whole while there's something we can do to contribute to the solution that we're praying for but we're not willing to take that kind of action one time I was counseling someone who didn't have a job and they desperately wanted a job and they were praying and praying for a job and asking other people to pray for a job and so I asked them well how many places have you applied to and they said none I said, well you know Maybe there's a little something you can contribute to this situation. I don't know. Maybe God's just going to bring the company to you, but you know, it might be worth doing the thing that you know to do. One time I was counseling a couple that was seeking financial assistance from the church and from God. They had some major um, debts and they had made some very foolish decisions along the way that brought them to this place and they wanted financial help. But as we started to dig into their financial situation, I learned that they had $20,000 of unneeded assets sitting in their garage that would have covered their debt. And I thought, well, maybe that's a place to start. You've got to be willing to contribute something to this solution that you are seeking. And, and maybe that won't take care of all of it, but you might need to take some steps. Jesus asked these guys to take literal steps of faith to trust that they would be healed along the way. And I think sometimes that's the way God works with us today. Someone put it this way. It's kind of like praying for a hole while you're leaning on a shovel. It's like you've got the solution right there to your problem, at least part of it. So you need to start taking some steps and, and moving in that direction. And Jesus asked them to take a literal step of faith toward the priests to be cleared by them. Now, along with the other nine, the leper that we're focusing on did this. And so our first point is, or our second point is his obedience brought him to healing. His obedience brought him to healing along the way. Now, let me clarify what, um, what happened here, because he approached Jesus not knowing if he would be healed. Have mercy on us. It's Jesus' choice. He doesn't know if it's going to happen. He has faith that Jesus could heal him. But then when Jesus says, go and present yourself to the priest, it required faith that Jesus would heal them. They had to go to the priest trusting it's going to happen on the way. It didn't happen right away. It happened somewhere along the way, which is really interesting. I wish I could have been there to see that moment when they're traveling and they're partway along the, the journey and, and, and they're wondering and they're hopeful and they're excited and they believe, but you know, maybe there's still some doubts there. Like how is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And suddenly Joe's nose grows back and they're like, Whoa, I I've never seen that before. You have one of those. Wow. That's amazing. You know? And then, you know, Jim gets his ear back, you know, and, and Jeff was mostly blind. He's just been following the other guys, but now he can see and he can see just fine. No, no problem. 
And then the most amazing thing of all happens. Harold's arm just grows back out of his shoulder. And it's like, wow, this is incredible. We are healed. I don't know if it happened exactly like that, but something like that must have happened. These guys were clearly lepers. They had all the issues that lepers have. And along the way, they get healed. And they're overjoyed, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know exactly how it played out, but they've got to be jumping for joy. They've got to be hugging each other, yelling, thankful, praising God, just so thrilled at what happened. And then one of them says, we need to go back and thank Jesus. He did this for us. We need to thank him. And the other nine say, are you crazy? You realize this is the first time where I'm going to get to see and hug and hold my family in 10 years. And you're telling me I need to delay that by another day to go back where we just were and then go back to the priest to be cleared. Like you want me to go all the way back there and backtrack to Jesus? He says, yeah, but Jesus is the one that did this for us. We need to go back and we need to thank him for what he did. That's the, it's the right thing to do. It's the appropriate thing to do. We can come back to the temple later and be cleared. And the other nine say, you go for it. We're taken off. We're not going to delay this by one more day. We get to get some real food. We get to sleep in a real bed. We get to experience life like we haven't known in years. And so they head off and he heads back. His healing brought him to thankfulness. That's our next point. His healing brought him to thankfulness. He wants to go back. And you know, the others probably raised a very good point here, I'll bet. Jesus told us to go to the priests. So we're just obeying him. But this one leper, he saw through that. He realized, no, we need to put Jesus first. We need to go back and thank him first. And then we'll go and be cleared and do the thing that's helpful for us. You know, it wasn't convenient or fun for him to do this, to go back, to add extra time to his journey, to delay his ability to reenter society. But he was willing to put Jesus first. Thanking Jesus was worth it to him. And so our next point is that his thankfulness brought him to action. His thankfulness brought him to action. It makes me think of how many times in my life I choose convenience and comfort over Jesus. That's what those nine men did. You know, those nine men, they, they had faith to be healed. They had faith Jesus could do it. And they were healed on the way. And they went and they got cleared by the priests and they made their way back into society. But they chose convenience and comfort over Jesus, the man who had just healed them. And I wonder if that's why Jesus did it this way. That's why he didn't just do it right there in front of them. He, he, it's a delayed miracle. And, and after a certain point, they get healed. And then you see who really has a heart of thankfulness. And this man's thankfulness brought him to action. He's actually going to do something with it. And it's a convicting thought for me. For that this man was willing to, to go to such great lengths to make Jesus number one before his own desire to sleep in a nice bed that night and to be back with his family and back with his friends. And so he makes his way back on the journey, backtracks to see Jesus. And here's what Luke writes about his return. He says, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Now, a few things I want to point out about this. Number one, the appropriate place to worship God was at the temple. That was the place where you praise God. And yet this man comes back and praises God at Jesus' feet. 
And it's almost like Jesus is the temple to him. He recognizes there's something about this man, Jesus. There's something different about him. He has the power to heal. He has a power from God. Maybe he didn't understand all the theological implications of that. But he, instead of going to the temple to praise God, he goes to Jesus to praise God at his feet. I think that is so cool. And he thanks Jesus. In fact, the word that's used in the Greek means a continual action. He's thanking Jesus over and over again. And isn't that what you would do? If you were cured of a lifelong incurable disease, wouldn't you just be so thankful that you couldn't stop thanking the one who did it for you? And that's what he does. He's thanking Jesus and thanking Jesus. And then Luke drops the bombshell. This man was a Samaritan. Dun, dun, dun. The Samaritans were not exactly liked by the Jews. This was a crazy turn in the story. In fact, Luke kept this detail for us the whole time. He didn't even introduce it like one man, a Samaritan, wanted to go back. No, no, he waits till this point, till we get to this point so that everybody reading this can go, what, a Samaritan? Yeah, these are the guys that the Jewish people didn't get along with. In fact, this man was kind of a double outcast for the Jewish people, a Samaritan and a leper. Do you know why the Jews didn't like the Samaritans? The Samaritans were people that back hundreds of years earlier, when the Jewish people were carried off into exile by conquering nations, those nations, what they liked to do, they learned that if they wanted to stop revolts, you had to uproot the people that you just conquered and move them to another place. Because if they weren't in their land, they wouldn't feel like they needed to rise up and defend their land. And so they figured out that's how we stop revolts. Some nations, the way they did this is they uprooted people they conquered, moved them to the land of another people they conquered and sort of swapped. And just said, okay, well, I mean, if it's not your land, but it's somebody else's land, you're going to be much less likely to fight over it. Sometimes they carry these people away and put them back in, in the country of the conquering nation to kind of be their subjects or servants in that kind of an arrangement. But when the Jewish people were carted off, some of them remained and were left in the land to be subjects in the land. And in this case, those people ended up being the Samaritans. They were called the Samaritans. They were Jewish by descendants, but the Jewish people believed, and we don't know whether this is true or not, but the Jewish people believed that the Samaritans intermarried with the Gentile nations that moved in after they were conquered. And so it was thought by the Jewish people that these were, were half Jew and half not, and so they were, they were tainted. They were impure. They weren't true Jews. Not only that, but the Samaritans made little tweaks to worship along the way. And, and some of it, they had to. Some of it was a response to the changing conditions around them as this conquering nation comes in and controls what they can do. But the Samaritans would make little changes to how they practiced their Judaism so that by the time the Jewish people come back into the land, they're re reunited with the Samaritans and they go, you aren't one of us. You worship differently than us and you've intermarried with Gentile people and so you aren't real Jews. And so this man was considered to be one of these outcasts of society, one of the people that the Jewish people despised. Leprosy and a Samaritan. Now, it's assumed that the other nine are probably Jewish men because Luke makes such a point that this man was a Samaritan, and yet he's the one that comes back. What can we learn from this? Well, there's a couple of things. It's interesting that Luke points this out because, first of all, Jesus' ministry was not just to the Jewish people. Jesus was was open to all. He was willing to help all. He helped Gentiles. He helped Jews. He helped Samaritans. In some cases, the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritans even more than, than Gentiles. What's worse than a Gentile is someone who is a traitor with the Gentiles in their minds. And yet Jesus helped them all. He had compassion on them all. 
And even beyond that, it's interesting to point out that who's the noble one in this story? Who's the honorable one? Who's the one that does the right thing? It's the Samaritan. It's the one who the listeners of this story early on would have been least likely to predict. Kind of reminds you of the good Samaritan, right? It's the good Samaritan, not the Jewish leaders that help the man by his side of the road. It's the same point that's being made there. God does not play favorites when it comes to race or ethnicity or things like that. And there are lots of people that God is willing to accept and invite into his kingdom and into his family. Now, notice what Jesus says to the man when he returns in verse 17. Jesus says, didn't I heal 10 men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except for this foreigner? So he's asking these rhetorical questions. He, he's making a statement by what he is saying. Ten men were healed, but only one took action to show his gratitude. The other nine, they were also healed. Jesus acknowledges that. I, I healed ten men, didn't I? They were healed, but they didn't come back. Their thankfulness did not result in action. They didn't come back to thank Jesus and give glory to God. And this man, he recognized there was something special about Jesus. And so he put Jesus first. And then Jesus says to him, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Now that's an interesting phrase. Because Jesus has just singled out this man. And he gives him this special commendation. Your faith has healed you. What about the other nine? Were they not healed? Did they not have faith? Why is Jesus making this special statement about this man who came back as distinct from the other nine? See, the other nine, they had faith enough to take the steps. They had faith that Jesus could heal him. Them, they had faith to head toward the priests. They were healed on the way. So what does Jesus mean? Your faith has healed you. And here is where you have to dig into the Greek to see the distinction. Because there are different words for healing being used. In verse 15, the word being used is eomai, which means heal or cure. And in verse 19, the word that Jesus uses for this man, your faith has healed you, is sozo, which means to be saved or made whole. It's a different word that he uses, and there's a reason for that. Sometimes different words are used just because they're synonyms. But this one, it's clear there's something else going on here, something special about this man. This is not just physical healing. He's been made whole spiritually. It reminds you of all those times where Jesus heals someone. And then he says, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven too. That didn't always happen. There were some times where Jesus healed people and their sins weren't forgiven. They had faith to be healed, but they didn't have faith that Jesus was someone special from God. This is different. And you're seeing the, the distinction right in front of you. You're seeing nine people who were healed and believed they could be healed, but didn't actually believe in Jesus. They didn't make him first. They didn't make him their priority. They didn't decide to follow him. This man comes back, special connection to Jesus. I want to thank you. I want to show my gratitude. I'm going to praise God at your feet. And Jesus says, your faith has made you whole or your faith has saved you. And so his faith brought him to wholeness. His faith brought him to wholeness. Daryl Bach writes, the deliverance Jesus affirms here is greater than the healing the man has experienced. There's something else going on. Clinton Arnold says, while all 10 were healed, only one was saved. That's powerful. There's so much we could pull out of this text by way of application. But let me just point out a few things to you as we close. Maybe there's something in your life 
that you need to bring to Jesus, a need that should bring you to Jesus. And some of you may have followed Jesus for a long time, and this is normal to you, and you do this all the time. Some of you may not know Jesus at all. You may have no personal relationship with him. Some of you may, may be here, and, and, and you're just visiting today, or you're watching online, and you're just curious what it's all about, or you're, you're here for someone that's being baptized to watch them. Maybe you have a need in your life, and you've never actually brought that to Jesus and said, God, what can you do with this? And I'm not going to stand here and promise you that he's going to take away your problem or resolve all of your issues. I can't speak for God in that way. I can't make that decision for God. Sometimes the way God works in our life is he doesn't take away our issue. He gives us the grace that we need to handle it and to endure it and bear with it. He teaches us something through it. He helps us to grow through it, or, or he does some other work in the world through our difficulty. But I can promise you that when you bring your need to Jesus, he promises to be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He promises to never allow you to experience anything that is beyond what you can handle with his help. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He says he wants you to cast your burdens onto him because he cares for you. He doesn't want you to be anxious or worry. He wants you to trust in him. It's a different life when you bring your need to Jesus. So that's one thing. Another great takeaway for us is what has God done in your life that you need to be thankful for? What is there that you need to be thankful for? You know, I find that a lot of people, even Christians, can become so sour and bitter because of the various negative things they experience in life. And they can just walk around with a very negative disposition. I, I get it. There's a lot of trouble in the world. And there's a lot of trouble in your life. And you can probably make a whole list of all the things that you don't like right now. All the things that, that aren't, don't fit your preferences or they hurt or they're uncomfortable or they're inconvenient. Or there might be some real serious challenges and, and illnesses and issues at work and issues in relationships that are a real problem for you. And I, I get all of that. But this week especially, don't we have so many things to be thankful for? So I want to give you a challenge. The challenge is I want you to make a list this week before Thanksgiving of things that you are thankful for. I know that doesn't sound like much of a challenge. So here's the challenge. It's got to be 100 items long. So 100 things that you're thankful for. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to get to 65 and go, uh, what else is there? And that exercise will be so good for your soul because eventually you'll come up with a hundred and maybe you'll keep going and you will think of things you've never thought of before. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, I can be thankful for that too. And that'll be such a good exercise for you to go through just a hundred things that I am thankful for. It'll be good for your soul. I promise you. Finally, the last point that I made about the Samaritan leper was his thankfulness brought him to action. His thankfulness brought him to action. I'm sure the other nine were also thankful, but they didn't take action as a result of their thankfulness. They didn't show their gratitude. And there is a difference, isn't there, between saying thank you and showing thank you? I mean, there is a big difference between uttering the words and actually taking action to show, yes, you truly have gratitude in your heart. Jesus doesn't just save you from something. He saves you for something. And so my question for you as we close this portion of the service is just what is the action that you are taking to show your gratitude to God? Maybe it's been gnawing at you for a while. Maybe it's something that, that you know you should do. Or maybe it's something you shouldn't do. I'm not going to get too specific here because this is very personal for each and every one of us. But is there a way that God has been prompting you to show gratitude, to take action as a result of what he's done for you that you haven't been doing, that you haven't been willing to give over to him? 
You know, there's a reason why God gives all of his children spiritual gifts because he wants them to be actively involved in the world and engaged with the church and doing something in response to what he does for us. Jesus doesn't ask us to do lots of things so that we can become a part of his family. He invites us to be part of his family and then equips us to go do lots of good things. So what actions are we taking to show that we are thankful for what Jesus has done for us? Would you bow your heads in prayer with me for a minute? Father, my prayer is that every single one of us that believes we are a part of your family would be willing to present our life to you as an offering today out of thankfulness for what you've done for us. Lord, you have sent Jesus to die on a cross so that he could take our sin penalty onto him and pay for it and offer us this free gift of salvation so that we can be healed from our sin and made whole and saved so that we can have a relationship with you, so that we can have a completely different kind of life, so that through all the valleys of life, we have you right beside us to get us through it. We have a hope. We have a future, thanks to you. And Lord, my prayer is that that would just drive us to an attitude of action, of attitude of gratitude, and then the action that comes from that, Lord. May we not be passive, sitting on the sidelines, praying for you to do something, but not willing to be part of the solution, Lord. I pray that, that we would all be willing to show our gratitude. Help us to live, an live a lifestyle of that, where we're thinking about that this week, not just this week, not just this Thursday, but every day of the, the year, Lord remembering all of the grace that you've given us, all that you've done for us. It's amazing. And not just having that heart of thankfulness, but then, then being willing to take action because of it. God, we pray that you would remind us at the key moments and then give us the boldness and the courage to do what needs to be done in response to you, Lord. We thank you for everything you've done. We offer our, our whole selves as a sacrifice to you, Lord. In your name we pray.